The following message is brought to you by the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity. To learn more about the Ezra Institute's mission to advance the Lordship of Christ, please visit www.ezrainstitute.ca. Language and uh, its effect on law, and uh, in particular I want to look at contemporary views of language, literary theory. I also want to, though uh, we said already we don't want to just give the negative view, I want to give you the positive view of it from the outset, and that's what I'm going to do from the beginning. I'm going to talk about uh, the biblical view of the word, and then juxtapose it to what has happened to it since then. Uh, It did strike me while Joe was uh, speaking, he made reference to Psalm 119, this great psalm on the law, Uh, and I know many of you are lawyers. Uh, I was reminded of the fact that William Wilberforce memorized this psalm, the great parliamentarian. memorized this particular psalm for himself and obviously he used it to encourage and strengthen him in his uh, battle against slavery for decades. So I just uh, bring that to your attention. Now yesterday Joe uh, cited Thomas Schreiner on the law and its ongoing relevance for the Christian. I wanted to begin uh, with a quotation from John Calvin. I don't know if this was referred to in uh, your talk or not, Joe. but uh, Calvin, as you know, is, the, I think, the best exegete of the Reformation. Uh, and he made this comment on the Sermon on the Mount. And those who claim that Jesus had improved, corrected, or altered the Old Testament take on the law. This is the first point in your handout. Calvin writes, it is wrong to reckon this as uh, this a revision of the law or that Christ was wishing to lift his disciples to a higher level of perfection than Moses could achieve. This has given rise to the idea that the beginning of righteousness was once handed down in the law, but its perfection was taught in the gospel. However, Christ, in fact, had not the least intent of making any change or innovation in the precepts of the law. God there appointed once for all a right of life which he will never repent of. So let us have no more of that error, that here a defect of the law is corrected by Christ. Christ is not to be made into a new lawgiver, adding anything to the everlasting righteousness of his Father, but is to be given the attention of a faithful interpreter, teaching us the nature of the law, its object, and its scope. I say that and bring it to your attention because... uh, We've been making a certain position clear here from the outset. Um, It's just been said that that this can be considered to be a heretical position even by some in the church, but I think we can see quite clearly that this is the position of Calvin uh, himself. And uh, I think that is uh, relevant at any rate. So as I said, I want to talk to you about language, the philosophy of language, and then reflect on how it uh, changes our views of the law. And the starting point is a text I cited yesterday, in fact, has been cited a few times here. Uh, The first few lines of John's prologue. Second bulletin on your handout. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Now the fact that Jesus, the word of God, is the creator is significant for reasons that I touched on yesterday. I'm going to repeat just slightly. 
the fact that everything has been created by the logos, logos being the Greek word for word, means that not only does he have absolute authority over the created order, it also means that the created order bears his mark. I know Joe just touched on this. That also means we can understand it, however. It's logical. Uh, and it speaks as his ambassador. The whole creation does. Psalm, one, Psalm 19 states, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. Note that not only does the uh, created order speak, there is no uh, there is no words whose voice is not heard. It's also heard everywhere. It's not just spoken; it's heard. It's understood. Now, what that means under the guidance of God's word, we can understand, explain, and cultivate the whole world. Uh, and we can do so in a way that is coherent, so long as we understand that it is God's handiwork. We understand what holds it together is God, and by knowing him, we can understand it. We can't look to the natural world and get it from looking at only that, we have to understand it under God's guidance. Now, the fact that it is God's handiwork does not deny that our, our role or our intellectual handiwork, to use uh, a phrase which is rather infelicitous, but our intellectual handiwork, we have a role in that. So technolo te technology, the logos of techne, the art of the word, um, is possible because the dominion mandate of cultivation extends beyond agriculture to include all areas of life. And that includes all intellectual endeavors. Most of you are involved in those. Uh, Christian education is thinking God's thoughts after him. And that thinking of God's thoughts after him changes with each generation. There's a development. There's genuine progress to be made. The progress is not beyond God's means, but it's within what God has ordained, and it's perfecting what God has placed there. Uh, so there is a necessary element of, of to uh, quote Coleridge, uh, of repetition in the finite mind of the eternal act of creation. And just as agriculture can lead to better breeds of cattle and more nutritious crops, so also there can be a redeeming and a perfecting of human culture that honors God and serves humanity. I say this to you because, again, it does sound, it can sound when I'm listening to us uh, speak that it's all doom and gloom. But there's a genuinely positive human work to be done, including in the law. But in every profession, there is genuine fruitfulness that can, that can happen there. Now, our knowledge of things also relates back to the person of God and can be understood and discussed by those who bear his image, human persons, that's us. And this, again, is precisely why educational progress in science made its greatest progress in the time of the Reformation. When not only uh, was the priesthood of all believers asserted and understood really uh, grasp for the first time its full significance as opposed to a distinct class of believer, the priest, 
as opposed to the laity. But so was the possibility of honoring God in all these areas of human endeavor. You can honor God and do a priestly work as a farmer, as a lawyer. The butcher, the baker, the candlestick maker, all of these things you can honor God in, and there's a godly way of doing them. And this is the development of this is why the modern world flourishes in a way that the classical world does not. I referred to classical education, but actually Christian classical education uh, eclipses classical education as the ancient world did it. There's something right in it, but there's also something that was never really fully realized. So we go beyond the confines of the church building into all areas of life. Now, these scientists assume the comprehensibility of everything God created and that it was good and right to understand it. I would say the same thing of the arts, and I could give a series of lectures on that on its own, but that's not my purpose this morning. And we can also extrapolate to say that better understanding and right living are connected. So Colossians 1, speaking of the preeminence of Christ in all things, adds these words. By him, point four here, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Now, this phrase, hold together, doesn't mean that uh, Jesus Christ is a sort of glue. It means that all claims to knowledge are rooted in revelation. When we know him, we understand these things. There's a personal element to it. Don't abstract knowledge from Christ. We are persons, we can't really, we have the capacity for abstract, but abstraction is always in some sense a distortion. God doesn't use a number to create the universe, he uses his word. Don't forget that. Uh, Now, evangelicals, when I refer to uh, revelation, will immediately associate scripture with revelation. And that, of course, uh, is correct, but it's not exhaustive. Exhaustive. There are other means of, of God's revelation as well. Um, the, of course, the Bible is God's word, and it's infallible, and it's inerrant, and it's normative. Uh, but there are actually words of God that are not in the Bible. Some of them stretch our very understanding of language, but I would say that uh, when we say that God spoke the whole cosmos into being, which we see in Genesis 1, we're already stretching our understanding Uh, of language anyway. Uh, And in part, our problem here is we have a very impoverished understanding of the word. So let me say a little bit about the Hebrew understanding of the word. I think it's helpful. Uh, The Hebrew word for word is davar. Uh, Its root verb occurs about 1,100 times in scripture. That's the root of it. Uh, sort of derived ones are another another 300, so 1,400. That root verb, as I say, it comes up 1,100 times in Scripture. It's translated with 45 different English words. We require those to fully understand. It doesn't... To parse them out. Now, Davar can be translated by power, purpose, book, provision, reason, work, matter, thing, cause... Commandment. So the Ten Commandments are the Ten Words, the Ten Devar. It could be a written report, it could be a single utterance, a whole book, a prophetic message, but in general, Devar means both the Word itself 
and its accompanying creative act. Its effect, what it does. So words are always actions, and they're effective actions. So in Isaiah 55, verse 11, the davar goes out of God's mouth to accomplish a task. And this passage declares that the davar never returns void. It always achieves a purpose. And this is why we've been saying that the, the, the necessity of hanging language and law, God's words with, with our laws, is because it's powerful, it's effective. It accomplishes things. Don't think that it's just words. Don't agree with this ridiculous statement that I read down at the IVE cafe. Business schools always drive me crazy. All words are pegs to, have, to hang ideas on. What does that say? Words are meaningless. It's just a peg to hang the idea on. For the, it's a, this is a pragmatic view of language which actually is not, neither pragmatic nor effective. Uh, but Devar has uh, both the word and the accompanying power to fulfill it in sight at all times. So for instance, let me demonstrate. There are words God speaks to all creation to direct and determine its way. So Psalm 147 verses 15 to 18 at the bottom of your first page there. He sends out his command to the earth. His word runs swiftly. He gives snow like wool. He scatters hoarfrost like ashes. He hurls down his crystals of ice like crumbs. Who can stand before his cold? He sends out his word and melts them. He makes his winds blow and the waters flow. And we should not forget that though some of God's words are contained in the Bible, not all of them are. So John's Gospel asserts that, and this is on the second page, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Christ, Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And he adds to this in the last chapter of his gospel, there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. And we could say something similar of the prophets and the apostles. Their words are not all in Scripture, though they would doubtless be valuable. What we have in Scripture uh, are God's words, but they're not all God's words. They're the ones that we need. They're the necessary ones. But most importantly, what is also not contained in Scripture is Jesus Christ himself, the living word of God. His person is not contained in Scripture. He has an authority above Scripture. But his scripture is his definitive word to us. We're guided by that. Now, I say that simply because I want to give a, a short, though somewhat exhaustive, understanding of the significance of the word, how important it is, uh, as a way of contrasting what I'm about to come to in a few minutes. Um, so I, I, I wanted to say something about the character of biblical language now and how it relates to law. My intention is to trace the development of this new understanding of language in contemporary literary theory and to demonstrate how it colludes with our sense of what I've talked about already. I've heard uh, Dr. Ventrella, I've heard Joe, all of us are saying similar things here. This reference to uh, the Western world's sense of autonomy and how it's broken with the past and how this comes together in literary theory to become codified, to give language to this autonomy. I'm going to talk about that. But first, let me talk about how a great Christian thinker has used a biblical understanding of the word 
and applied it, again, just as context. That's St. Augustine, and this is the quotation. I can't remember what number it is, but it's lengthy here. It is number eight. This is his treatise on Christian education. It's a sort of primer for how to handle scripture in all of its richness and diversity. And what he says about the plenary nature of Revelation, um, I've already mentioned, because he includes other things besides words in it. So let me just read from this. Augustine writes, All instruction is either about things or about signs. But things are learnt by means of signs. I now use the word thing in a strict sense to signify that which is never employed as a sign of anything else. For example, wood, stone, cattle, and other things of that kind. Not, however, the wood which we read Moses cast into the bitter waters to make them sweet. Nor the stone which Jacob used as a pillow. Nor the ram which... Abraham offered up instead of his son. The, for these, though they are things, are also signs of other things. What are they signs of? They're signs of Jesus Christ in each case. So there's a, typo, there's a typology that he's suggesting that is in these things. Um, there are signs of another kind, those which are never employed except as signs, for example, words. No one uses words except as signs of something else. And hence may be understood what I call signs, those things to wit, which are used to indicate something else. Accordingly, every sign is also a thing, for what is not a thing is nothing at all. Everything, however, is not also a sign. And so, in regard to this distinction between things and signs, I shall, when I speak of things, speak in such a way that even if some of them may be used as signs also, that will not interfere with the division of the subject according to which I am to discuss first uh, things and signs afterwards. But we must carefully remember that what we have now to consider about things is what they are in themselves, not what other things they are signs of. Now, let me comment on this because I realize it's pretty dense. What Augustine, note that Augustine acknowledges the reality of things and signs. And he identifies different types. Firstly, there are things which are just things. In the third line, he mentions wood, stone, cattle, and things. Those are things that are just things. They signify nothing. Secondly, there are, are, and, uh, there are however, things that do signify something. And he gives uh, the things that in the lives of Moses, Jacob, and Abraham. Those signify something. The wood thrown into the bitter waters that makes it sweet, that that signifies something. It's not just a piece of wood. And finally, there are signs which in their nature signify, and those are words. Even there, words are a species of thing because words are not nothing, they're something. But they're signifying things. Now, what Augustine is doing here is making the distinction between the literal and the figurative uh, or the typological. He's helping people learn to read scripture in its richness it's written for young Christians who are really struggling with how to read the Bible. And it's not just young Christians that struggle with this. It's not, it's not an easy book to read. Um, now he, and he's accounting not so much for the varying genres of Scripture, which is so popular in our day. You know, if you understand genre, then you'll understand the Bible. He will get to that, but actually he's talking about something more significant than that here. 
Um, but he's rather talking about the varying purpose and intentions of things and words. Now, the reason I mention this is because this is very different from what's going to come. And I, I'll, let me highlight that to you, what the difference is. What is salutary here is that he believes that there are things that exist outside of our language and therefore outside our capacity to construct them. This is the key point. You may say that isn't earth-shaking, and I agree with you. However, it's quite consequential when we come to the literary theory I'm about to address. Firstly, it acknowledges the reality of the created order. Note that Augustine does not refer to the woodstone or cattle as some sort of uh, phenomenological appearance. It's not really real. It, it appears to be out there. Uh, nor is it just a particular corresponding to a universal. It's not platonic. You know, it's not just some sort of thing, but the real thing is up in the ideas, in the realm of ideas. It's not just something like this. It's not just a peg to hang the idea on. This is the... This is, uh, Platonism with pragmatist, a pragmatist twist on it, constructivist twist. The, the word doesn't really mean anything, and the idea is the main thing, but the idea is whatever we want to put into it. This drives me crazy, but you already got that. <laughs> Note he doesn't distinguish between these things, actuality and their reality. He certainly does not ascribe them ultimate reality, for to do that would be to give it uh, divine standing, but he does nonetheless think that there is something really there. He's thereby distinguishing himself from the Platonists, the Eastern philosophical tradition, as, and as we shall see, contemporary literary theory. Secondly, this view has the consequence that human language does not create all reality. Now, that again may not sound shocking, but in the writing of 20th century continental philosophy, that is precisely what is claimed. To use the words of Martin Heidegger, language is the house of being. Language doesn't point to being, language is the house of being. Heidegger is not denying the existence of uh, the world outside of language, but he is saying that we can't understand it outside of language, that it is incomprehensible. We're thrown into the world, it's, the, it's certainly there, and we're, but we're always implicated in it. It's forming, forming us, it's prejudicing us, and Heidegger's view of human nature is really an organic view of human nature. We're always being acted upon. We're not actors. We don't follow God in our words creating a reality. He thinks it does, but the reality is as much forming us. We're caught in this web. Now, you may say, fine and good, but, but so What? I don't know if you're saying that or not, but I'm imagining you saying that. You probably are saying that. Well, the reason I've mentioned this is to follow up what I said about the organic autonomy postulated of human nature since the 19th century, which replaces that of human personhood in Western thought. Now, I want to speak of the implications on language. Now, here I get to the contemporary stuff. In the structuralist linguistics of Ferdinand de Saussure, the so-called father of modern linguistics, what I think we have is a theory of language that, is, uh, that he's trying to develop that accords with the dictates of this self-interpreting autonomous organism. We've got a new notion of human nature. Let's have a new notion and theory of human language. That's what's going on. 
and it becomes foundational to feminist literary theory, Marxist literary theory, deconstructionist literary theory, post-colonial literary theory, queer literary theory, whatever you want. It's foundational to all of them. And these, in turn, in turn affect our understanding of the law, because the law is formed of words. But let me not get ahead of myself here. Let me trace a little bit about what Saussure actually says. Now, his view of language is in his course in general linguistics. It's a book, really, which is just a summary of his lectures at the University of Geneva from 1906 to 1911. His aim was to explain the relationship between speech and the evolution of language. Note it's evolutionary. And it involved investigating language as a structured system of signs. For, for Saussure, unlike Augustine, a sign includes two things. It is composed of the signifier and the signified, the uh, signifiant and the signifié. These cannot be conceptualized as separate entities, but rather as a mapping from significant differences in sound to potential differential denotation. So the Caesarean sign exists only at the level of synchronic system. Diachronic is a historical development. We engage with the past. He's talking about it only as a synchronic, only within our time, only within our usage. It's a synchronic system in which signs are defined by their relative and hierarchical privileges of co-occurrence. In other words, I know that sounds like gobbledygook. In other words, signs derive their meaning solely from their relation to other signs. We understand male by understanding its opposite, female. That's what defines male, female. There's a binary opposition, and the binary opposition uh, gives us the understanding of what the other thing is. And you'll see on down the line, oh, uh, sex will define gender. Uh, Christian, Muslim, rich, the poor, and so forth. These are forms of opposition. You may, you may say these aren't all oppositional, as I suggest, but this was for the purpose of where I'm going with the lecture after this. But, that, but their relation to other signs is what gives these things their meaning, not the external world. It's the words that, that explain the words. We've detached them from the natural world, the created order. We've also detached them from God's word. It no longer norms our words, our understanding. The relationship between a sign and the real world thing it denotes is also arbitrary. There is no there's not a natural relationship between a word and the object it refers to, nor is there a causal relationship between the inherent properties of the object and the nature of the sign used to denote it. Now, let me give you um, this is the uh, ninth point here. This is from Terry Eagleton's. Um, Introduction to Literary Theory. Eagleton is a, a British literary theorist. He's one of, the, one of the better ones in the sense of the more coherent ones. And let me read from this. And he, he explains it a little bit. He says, suppose we are analyzing a story in which a boy leaves home after quarreling with his father, sets out on a walk through the forest in the heat of the day and falls down a deep pit. The father comes out in search of his son, peers down into the pit, but is unable to see him because of the darkness. 
At that moment, the sun has risen to a point directly overhead, illuminates the pit's depths with its ray, and allows the father to rescue his child. After a joyous reconciliation, they return home together. Now, this is Eagleton's little story, and he confesses this may not be a particularly gripping narrative, but it has the advantage of simplicity. Clearly, it could be interpreted in all sorts of ways. A psychoanalytic critic might detect definite hints of the Oedipus complex in it and show how the child's fall into the pit is a punishment he unconsciously wishes upon himself for the rift with his father. Perhaps a form of symbolic castration or a symbolic recourse to his mother's womb. A humanist critic might read it as a poignant dramatization of the difficulties implicit in human relationships. Another kind of critic might see it as an extended, rather pointless wordplay on son, son. Uh, What a structuralist critic, and here comes to the point, what a structuralist critic would do would be to schematize the story in a diagrammatic form. The first unit of signification, boy quarrels with father, might be written as low rebels against high. The boy's walk to the forest is a movement along a horizontal axis in contrast to the vertical axis, low, high, and could be indexed as middle. The fall into the pit, a place below ground, signifies low, again in the zenith of the sun as high. By shining into the pit, the sun has, in a sense, stooped low, thus inverting the narrative's first signifying unit where low struck against high. The reconciliation between father and son restores an equilibrium between low and high, and the walk back home together, signifying middle, marks this achievement in a suitably intermediate state. Flushed with triumph, the structuralist rearranges his rulers and reaches for the next story. Eagleton's quite funny, actually. (laughs) He's a Marxist. Um, That's Eagleton's explanation of structuralism. And what we call in this order is a habitual pattern which we put on the world. And we seek to fix it by the means of language. And of course, the consequence of this is uh, of the fact that there is no real order out there and no objective reality to pattern our language. It begs the question... And this is where this goes, where structuralism becomes important and not just bizarre, is it begs the question is if the way in which we talk about things doesn't conform to the world, if it's not uh, God ordained that it is so, then why is it so? Why do we say that men are the opposite of women? And what is the effect of this? Why is it? And the second question is who benefits from the structure as we Uh, have construed it in language. Who benefits from it? And the answer is quite obviously those who have power and privilege. By the way, they're all on the left side here of my diagram. So there is a binary opposition, which he will see. But he will see, in line with his Marxist uh, look at things, that it is to the benefit of those who have money because the Marxists are always after the wealth, but also money and power. And this is entirely arbitrary, again, I say. Now, this is where contemporary literary theories start to bite. They get hold, and they start to become powerful. 
Because under the narrative of the cultural Marxists, say those of the Frankfurt School, the most influential of whom, at least on this side of the Atlantic, is uh, Herbert Marcuse, there is a deep-seated structural injustice There's a binary opposition, but there's a structural injustice as well because there's a privileging of the, of the left-hand column to the right-hand column. And this deep-seated structural injustice can and should be rectified by gradual social change. And Marcuse and his followers have done precisely that. They have, through the, the so-called long, slow march of the left, march their way through the institutions. They are in higher education, everywhere. Uh, they are in the legal system, everywhere. They are now in government, everywhere. And the purpose of them, and I'm going to leave this to Jenny tomorrow because she's going to talk about cultural Marxism, so I won't spend my time on that. The purpose of this is to break down this dichotomy and to subvert the order, the hierarchy that's in this because they'll see the male is oppressing the female, the notion of sex oppressing gender, the whites, the blacks, the heterosexuals, the homosexuals, the west, the east, and I could cite in each case a, a, lit, a, a writer which has pulled on one of these. Some of them you'll know already. This will be Marx. But all of these have a writer that will represent an attempt to speak on, on behalf of the oppressed, whether the oppression is there or not. They will speak of it as such. That is their agenda, and it's a matter of justice. So I do want to note this general pattern. Now, from the time of Virginia Woolf's The Second Sex, it has become, been, become common for certain people, now everyone, at, at one point it was just a, a lunatic fringe, now everyone, thanks to the success of the human rights legislators, to refer to gender. This is the one that actually is completely new. I would actually say this one's new as well. This one emerges in the 19th century as well. The idea of homosexuality. That there is such a thing as a being which is a homosexual. There's an, there's an act towards those of the same sex, but to be, give it to ontologize homosexuality, that is new in, in Western history. Uh, same with gender. These are novel terms that allow them to suggest that there's something really there and it's a structural oppression. They need the structure to, to give power to their sense of injustice and to bring about social change. But under Virginia Woolf, this idea of gender simply referred to the cultural norms and expectations surrounding one's biological sex. So Woolf was a woman... Uh, and a novelist, and she was bitter because uh, she was she felt that uh, she really didn't have the same success that her talent deserved, and she had, didn't have access to the smoky rooms where men smoke cigars, and uh, and really had cultural significance, and she was so she and she wanted to be more like the men in this sense, and so she saw. Uh, not her sex as the barrier, but the gender, the constructions, the social constructions, because all of these are socially constructed, because remember, everything is socially constructed, including maleness and femaleness. All of them are socially constructed, because once again, there is no reality outside of language. That 
Wolf doesn't say this, by the way. It's her followers that do that. So they make it out of this, because Wolf thinks that sex is something. Everyone does have a biological sex. You are male or female. And gender is the problem. In later theories, once uh, uh, structuralism bites and the post-structuralists come along, they'll say, really, both of these are just constructs, and gender includes sex, and we need to change what sex is, hence transgenderism and so forth. And the, what have we saw, 25 different genders that are going to appear. There's no limit to the number of genders that can appear, really. Um, but she wants to do everything that a man was and did, and so she questioned the rigidity of those cultural expectations in that she demanded that women have a, right, a room of their own, that they be allowed to do the things that men do. Most of us would be fine with that. I have no problem with that myself. But once she identifies this term gender, it now takes on a life of its own. Now, deconstruction, let me move beyond this. What time did I begin, Jenny? I don't even remember. Okay. Okay, fine. 13 minutes. So deconstruction comes in the wake of this. Now, deconstruction is a perspective that focuses on the lack of a truth out there or at the center to provide meaning. Jacques Derrida showed how all Western philosophical systems are dependent on a center. So we talked about the binary opposition, but what holds them together? Well, it's, you, it's either going to be God or the self or reason. And what they have in common is the logos. Derrida's aim is to deconstruct logocentrism in the Western tradition. Structuralism had shown that the center is just a fiction, merely another signify that has no being beyond language. Furthermore, Derrida will say, uh, in the focus on the binary pairs that make meaning, he argues that rather being polar opposites, each was dependent on the other for meaning, and we might say existence. So these, none of these have an independent uh, identity. They depend on the other for existence. We don't even understand them without it. Now this is, and, and hence he will deconstruct either of them. Say that they don't have any real meaning. And he will show how in all binaries, one of the terms was always subordinated to the other. So I can flip this around so that it was this way rather than that way. And then you would get the point. And to describe how meaning is produced, Derrida developed the term difference, meaning to differ and to defer. He focused in particular on the binary speech, speech versus writing, in which speech has always been seen to provide a guarantee of subjectivity and presence in the history of philosophy and linguistics. Whereas alternatively, writing is about absence or silence. Actually, I could have put presence and absence in there as well. We privilege the present over the absent. Uh, now, Derrida calls the privileging of speech and presence logocentrism. All of this is logocentric. Now, what does this have to do and how does it fit with justice, you might ask? In one sense, I think it's quite obvious. I've just stopped. If there's a power 
uh, differential, then obviously there's a justice issue. So in one sense, it's obvious. If this structure embedded in our language, however, is in its very nature arbitrary, it has no root in nature, nature being just another word for opposing culture, and depending on who you are, you're going to see that nature is... Uh, on top or down below. If you're an environmentalist, you'll say that culture oppresses nature. So they'll just flip it around because actually there is no real oppression there, but never mind that. Um, it has no root in God's revelation. It has no root in anything that we can argue rationally. Then doing the just thing means overthrowing the established power structure. That's what doing justice is inverting the meaning of words, subverting the meaning of words, and subverting those who benefit from the way we use language. And we get this vast web of social contracts, and we're there to liberate the oppressed from the oppressors. Now, hear what I witness, item 10. This is the web of oppression. This is taught in undergraduate textbooks. It is now referred to almost explicitly in educational faculties. It's there in our seats of governments. It's in there, there in our legal courts. You'll note at the center of this circle are four words, privilege, power, access, resources. I'm sorry that the diagram is not very easy to read. It's also in my Jubilee article on plastic sexuality. It's a little easier to see there. Um, note at the center we have, as I say, privilege, power, access, and resources. Around that center, as we, the closer we get to the center, the more we are in this column, in, and closer to privilege, power, access, and resources. So white male, uh, the ruling wealthy, those who speak English as their native tongue, who are able-bodied, who are Protestant, and who are heterosexual, are structurally privileged, structurally powered, structurally having access, and they have resources. And as such, they're oppressive. So if, you're, if that, that description meets you, you are an oppressor, structurally. Now you may say, I've never oppressed anyone in my life. I've done my very best to treat everybody uh, equally. That doesn't matter. That's not, the point is, in structural oppression, you're, you're guilty. You're already guilty. And the way in which you try and demonstrate that you are not guilty is by seeking to subvert the structure of oppression. So if you're white, you try and empower those who are not white to get into positions of power and authority. If you're heterosexual, you, you try and subvert heteronormativity if you've ever heard the word. The normativity of heterosexual marriage, for instance. you got to seek to be an activist for this. I'm going to talk about this more with respect to the gender agenda tomorrow, because that's where it's really pushing its way forward. And that's interesting that it comes that way, because uh, sexual activity is connected with true worship in all religions, all of them. The idols of the Canaanites were sex gods. Uh, the, the Christian analogy for marriage between a man and a woman is like God, Christ, and his church. There's a sexual metaphor that's there that has power. 
and we are since in the new paganism we are in, uh, inculcating a new religion then there's going to be a, then sex is going to be a part of that and it's going to be an androgynous sex and it's going to be a sex with everything and anything because it's organicism so everything goes we talked about people but I mean objects can have it as well bestiality is on the rise uh, they've just brought back laws against bestiality in Germany, by the way. Uh, they got rid of them in 1969 because they said, oh, these are antiquated, outdated, we don't need these anymore. Well, now they brought them back precisely because bestiality is rampant. It's also becoming increasingly common here. And not just bestiality, necrophilia and so forth. Uh, if you go to um, funeral parlors, they have cameras on the corpses. And there's a reason. So doing social justice entails breaking down these binary oppositions that accrued culturally. Joe has called this process equalization, making everything to be seen to be equal. Correct. And it's tended to make the one part of the binary opposition seem like it's the essential thing. Now, in his theory of justice, John Rawls used a social contract argument to show that justice and especially distributive justice, sharing power, privilege, wealth equally, is a form of fairness. Fairness is the word that President Obama uses all the time. It's the words that our NDP party uses. It's the words that Justin Trudeau uses to justify the subversion of all the normativity of this. Now, these things are not all equal and they're not all the same but they're presented as if they were. Note on the bizarre thing on, the, on this map, at the outside of those who are uh, away from privileged power, access, and resources are the Muslims. That might shock you a bit. But this was uh, constructed in the wake of 9-11, so they argued that the Muslims were structurally oppressed here as well. And so you have the bizarre uh, scenario in the TDSB where you have an Islam Awareness Week uh, month, rather, as well as a pro-gay agenda, even though if you put the Muslims in charge, they'd kill all the Muslims. Or the gays, rather. Yeah, they wouldn't kill all the Muslims. Well, they would do that as well. They kill one another rampantly. No one kills more Muslims than Muslims around the world. But yes. So it's fairness that is the new definition of justice. And what is fairness? Well, Rawls asks us to imagine ourselves behind a veil of ignorance. This is in his theory of justice. Imagine you're behind a veil of ignorance that denies us all knowledge of our personalities, social status, moral character, moral character, wealth, talents, and life plans, and then asks what theory of justice we would choose to govern our society when the veil is lifted. So we'll ignore what people do, what the nature of reality is there, what the historical precedent is. Ignore character, ignore uh, everything like that, and now, what is justice? We don't know who in particular we are, and therefore we can't bias the decision in our favor. So, says Rawls, the decision in ignorance models fairness because it excludes selfish bias. Now, Rawls argues that each of us would reject the utilitarian theory of justice, that we would seek to maximize welfare because of the risk that we might turn out to be someone whose own good is sacrificed for greater benefits for others. Instead, we would endorse his two principles of justice. Firstly, that each person is to have an equal right to the most extensive 
total system of equal basic liberties compatible with a similar system of liberty for all. Secondly, social and economic inequalities are to be arranged so that they are both one to the greatest benefit of the least advantaged, right-hand column, consistent with the just savings principle, and two, attached to offices and positions open to all under conditions of fair equality of opportunity. Now, what you have in roles is cultural Marxism. But now you have a consistent and a powerful advocate for it. And again, as I say, the political rulers of our day, when they appeal to fairness, they are, they're hearkening to Rawls' view of justice. His view of justice is contingent on his veil of ignorance. His veil of ignorance is actually just structuralism put under the rubric of a, yeah, under the veil of, let's do a thought experiment. But the thought experiment is the thought experiment of structuralism. Its view of language is the view of language of structuralism. Its view of reality is that of structuralism. The word we, the world construes, we construe the world and we can move things around. As we said, the self-autonomous organism is at the center of it. So is idolatry and so is injustice, quite frankly. But it's done in the name of justice. Okay? Thank you. Thank you for listening to this message brought to you by the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity. Please feel free to share it with friends, but do not charge for or alter the material in any way without the express written consent of the EICC. Thank you.